0: chapter 1 in your Bibles, let's pray and ask that the Lord would show us himself through the preaching of his word this morning. Lord, we come to you convicted, convinced that we this week have not lived as the body of Christ in the way that we ought to as much as we ought to, and in light of the great sacrifice that Christ has made by giving his life on the cross. We come to you as sinners this morning, Lord. We come to you as people who know what is right in many respects, and yet have chosen to disobey your commands. We're people who can't come to you and say, Lord, look what we've done. Isn't it great? We must come to you and know that you are great and say, look what you've done. And Father, I pray that you would show us what you've done, that you would show us your truth, that you would show us the great work of Jesus Christ and what it means for our lives. So that we can believe in you. So that we can trust in your son. And so that our souls and spirits can be changed. And so that we can be a blessing to our community and to the world. A true blessing through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open up your word and change us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During my time uh, in Bible college, I applied for a summer job at a Christian camp, and I was very excited when weeks later, I got a letter from the camp indicating that I had been accepted as a counselor for that 10-week camp season. See, I had attended this camp a couple of times as a teenager, and I had had a phenomenal experience. I met fantastic people. I I had a lot of fun. I experienced a greater sense of God's presence and power in my life. His love for me in the gospel during my time there as a teenager, as a camper. And so I was very excited to find out that I would have the chance to work there as a counselor that coming summer. I was expecting the entire summer to be sort of like that experience, only longer, for a longer period of time. I expected that my ministry, that my service to the Lord at that Christian camp would be a glorious, fun-filled time, an incredible experience of God's power. I had prepared myself for God to move in me and through me and to minister. And that did happen. What I wasn't quite as prepared for that summer were the difficulties that would go along with it. As you know, serving the Lord sometimes is difficult. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's hard. And I wasn't quite as prepared for how tough that summer was going to be. Not for any particular reason, just kind of a, a series of things. Playing basketball, swimming in a lake, hiking to waterfalls with a, a crowd of unruly teenagers every day became exhausting pretty quickly. Not all the campers thought I was as cool and hip as I thought my counselor was when I was a teenager. That was tough to take. Uh, about two-thirds of the way through the summer, I caught a stomach bug. I'll spare you the details. And after that, it was all I could do just to survive. Not all of my coworkers made it through the entire summer. One girl actually lost a finger uh, in a log-splitting accident. I mean, this, people were just having a hard time this summer. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, I was a little jealous of her. In spite of the fact that she lost a finger, I thought, well, at least she gets to rest for a little while. I'm wondering now if she didn't think of it, do it on purpose, actually. Serving the Lord is rarely as glamorous and glorious as we are sometimes tempted to think. Just ask anyone who's ever served in the church nursery or sat through a two-hour-long deacon's meeting. God has called each of us to serve him in one way or another. And if we're going to do that, it's not always going to be easy. Now, I've made light of it, but the fact of the matter is that living as a Christian, serving the Lord, ministering in the church, is no joke. For thousands of believers throughout the history of the church, it's been a series of trials and difficulty and even extreme suffering. Just consider, for example, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote the letter that I've asked you to open up to, the, the book of Colossians. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a missionary who planted churches all throughout the Roman Empire, all throughout the Mediterranean Basin. He wrote 13 out of our 27 New Testament letters, but he wasn't, like so many of our Christian leaders today, a very popular person. He never wrote any op-eds for the New York Times. He didn't have a doting... Uh, congregation or a nice house in fact his entire ministry could be summarized in terms of difficulty and desperation the Lord told uh, Ananias a man who would meet Paul just after he had been saved just after his conversion that Paul he says is an instrument a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel that sounds pretty glamorous that sounds pretty glorious but here's what he says next he says for I will show him How much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Later, Paul himself would write briefly about his troubles. He tells the Corinthian believers about countless beatings, often near death. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day, I was adrift at sea. Both the biblical record and the annals of history tell us that God's faithful servants are not, uh, are not people who go through life without trial. They, they don't go through life without difficulty. Paul's experience is not the exception, it's the rule. Even uh, men who ministered during the time of uh, when Christianity was most popular, you could say, people like William Carey and Adoniram Judson crossed oceans, battled fever, buried children, all for the sake of the gospel. Just a few weeks ago, a brother came to our church in Louisville and shared how when he converted from uh, Buddhism to Christianity and became a follower of Jesus Christ, his family literally held a funeral for him. They, they acted as though he was dead. Just because he became a follower of Christ. And maybe you yourself have had a similar experience. Maybe not to that degree. But you've found that in your service to the Lord Jesus Christ, in your ministry here at the church, just in your everyday life as a Christian trying to do what God has called you to do, it's not always easy. It's difficult. Maybe this morning, having begun your Christian walk with vigor and energy, you've grown tired. Your ministry efforts feel like you're pushing a heavy rock up a steep hill. You never get a break. You sympathize with the Apostle Paul in the passage that I just read. I mean, your, your ministry is hard. And yet here's what Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 1. Let's read, go ahead and read verses 24 through 29. You'd think Paul would be having a difficult time with the circumstances that God has called him to experience. And yet he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in christ for this i toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me so the question of course is why why is it that paul can say here in verse 24 i rejoice in my sufferings why would you say that Why would you say, I rejoice in serving the Lord, even when it brings difficulty and distress to my life? Even when God calls me to suffer, how can we, when God calls us, as he surely will, to suffer hardship in our own Christian lives? And this passage offers some profound answers to that question. It it gives us hope and joy in the midst of our difficulty when we're called to serve the Lord. But before we really get into those, let's pause for a moment and just observe what it is that Paul does not say. Why, Why does he say, uh, I rejoice in my sufferings? here's a couple things that he does not say. He does not rejoice in suffering because of the intrinsic value of suffering itself. He's not a masochist, right? He's not someone who's just a glutton for punishment. He doesn't love to suffer. He's no sick, pathological obsession with suffering for its own sake. He, he doesn't rejoice in suffering because of some physical benefit that he gets out of it. Now, that's something that we're all tempted to do, right? Uh, Not that there's anything wrong in and of itself with running 12 miles or doing a seven-day cleanse or taking a cold shower or or whatever the latest trend is for uh, someone who's into health and fitness. But that's not why Paul rejoices in trials. It's not because he gets some kind of physical benefit out of it. He doesn't rejoice in suffering because uh, it takes him to some kind of higher plane of spiritual knowledge or existence. That's not what he says. Now, that may sound a little strange to us, but the Colossian believers were, were dealing with just that temptation. There were false brothers coming in and saying, Hey, the body, your, your flesh is evil, and you need to set it aside and deny it and experience a higher plane of existence in your spirit. And that's not what Paul says. It causes him to rejoice in suffering. And, and perhaps most importantly, he doesn't say, "I rejoice in suffering because I, I'm somehow atoning for my sins or the sins of others." You know what I'm talking about? We feel guilty. We feel like we've done something wrong, and so we sort of punish ourselves in order to make up for that. I'm talking about self-flagellation. That's uh, we we feel guilty about our our. Uh, Lack of zeal for Christ, so out of guilt we write a check and we put it into the offering plate so that we can send missionaries overseas. Out of guilt, out of self-affliction... And and that's not why Paul says he rejoices in sufferings. I want to emphasize this because it does seem like that's sort of what he's saying. Let's read it again in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Doesn't it sound like Paul's saying, I'm suffering, and that kind of makes up for what Christ didn't do? Doesn't it sound like Paul's saying, Christ died on the cross, he suffered for sinners. He got us so far, and here I am. I'm coming along, and I'm suffering too, and I'm going to fill up what's lacking in what Christ has done. I'm going to suffer a little bit more, and between Christ's sufferings and my own sufferings, along with the suffering of the other apostles, we're both going to kind of team up, and, and we're going to suffer, and, and as a result, there will be salvation and uh, blessing for the rest of God's people. Doesn't it seem like that's kind of what Paul's saying? What does it mean when he says, I'm filling up with what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, I don't think he means that his suffering has any redemptive value. He's not suffering on behalf of sinners like Christ suffered on behalf of sinners. For several reasons. Uh, First of all, that would go against the whole tone and tenor of what Paul's saying in this epistle, this letter. This letter. If you were to take 15 minutes out of your day, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, you could read through this entire book, and you'd find that Paul is, is hammering home the message that Jesus Christ is everything to the Christian. Christ has done it all. You you would find that Christ is the uniquely glorious creator and savior of all and that any hope of being reconciled to God the Father must always and only come through one's relation to Christ. Paul couldn't do something to save other people. He's just a man. But Christ is the savior. Not only that, but That would contradict Paul's writings in other places in the Bible. Consider Romans chapter 3 where Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including Paul. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Salvation is all of God and all of Christ. As Paul teaches in other places. So, what does it mean that, what, what is Paul saying then? Well, to really understand that, we have to go to a parallel passage, and I, I want you to turn there with me just real quickly to just a few pages back to Philippians chapter 2. So, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, it should just be three or four pages back. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is uh, talking about the ministry that the Philippian believers had shown to him. By taking up a collection of money and sending it to him while he languished in prison. Paul was in Rome, languishing under house arrest. He couldn't work. And therefore, if he was going to eat, other people needed to help him uh, to to fund that lifestyle. And so the Philippian believers helped him. Here's what he says about the man uh, who, who they used, who they sent to help Paul. He says, I'm sending him back to you. Okay, And then in verse 29... Receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, and watch this, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So what did this man do? What did Epaphroditus do? Well, you have the Philippian believers. They've taken up a collection of money. They've gotten it all together. And so they've sacrificed on Paul's behalf. But they're over in Philippi. This is hundreds of miles away from where Paul is, is languishing in prison. So they have this money. They've already collected it, but it doesn't help Paul until it gets into his hands. And so what they did was they've picked out someone in the church, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, and they said, you take the money and you bring it over to Paul in Rome where he can actually use it. So what was lacking in the service of the Philippian believers in Paul's case? What was lacking is they had already made the sacrifice, they had already done the ministry, but no one had taken it to Paul. You see what I'm saying? So Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking in the service that they had towards Paul. So taking that back to the Colossians passage in verse 24, what is it that's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What's lacking? What's lacking? What's lacking is not that Jesus Christ's sufferings on their behalf were incomplete. It's not that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he couldn't quite save people. And he needed some help. What's lacking is that the, Colossian, uh, the, the people living in Colossae and, and all throughout Asia Minor and all throughout the Roman Empire, people even living today, didn't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so someone like Paul needed to suffer and needed to go through difficulty and he needed to go through trials in order to take that message of the gospel and bring it to the Colossian believers. You see what I'm saying? Paul filled up what was lacking in the Lord Jesus Christ's sufferings because he took that message of Jesus' sufferings and he brought it to the Colossian believers at great personal cost. So Paul is saying I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake and I'm filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ not because I'm helping Jesus suffer on your behalf but I'm taking what he's done and I'm bringing that message to you. So Paul is saying that the Colossians along with the millions of other souls living in darkness throughout the world didn't know anything about it and he brings this message to them. So we've talked about what Paul's not saying causes him to rejoice in his trials as he ministers for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about he loves suffering. He's not getting any benefit out of it for himself. He's not trying to help Jesus along. Jesus has already suffered on behalf of sinners. So why does he do that? Why should you? Why would Paul lean into difficulty and trial when he could just choose an easy, a lighter path? Well, Paul rejoices in his sufferings, as we'll see in this, in this text, because he had a solemn stewardship from God. He had a message to deliver, and he knew that it was his calling to take that message to the ends of the earth, a life-saving truth of the message of the, God, of the cross. And it's that very reason that emboldens us as well. Do you know that if you're sitting here today, and you're a Christian. You're someone who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you've you asked God to forgive you of your sins. And you know that Jesus' blood was shed on your behalf so that you could be right with God. That you have a stewardship as well. The Apostle Paul's stewardship was amazing. He had the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the cross, a solemn stewardship of God, and he needed to take that to people in Colossae and all throughout the Roman Empire, and God has given you a commission as well. A solemn stewardship. Look what he says in verses 25 and following. He says, I'm I'm rejoicing in my sufferings, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, For you, here's what it is, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. So what Paul's saying is, it's the message of the gospel and Paul's commission to proclaim it to all nations that overflows with joy even in the midst of sufferings. And I'd like to take the rest of our time just briefly this morning to show why this makes total sense. Why would you go through difficulty and suffering and trial and and lean into hardship for the sake of the ministry, for the sake of your service to the Lord? Because the message that we've been given, the ministry to which we've been entrusted, is so amazing and magnificent that it causes us to forget all those other things. So consider with me, first of all, the magnificence of the message. The message of the gospel is unlike any other we see from our passage today. Why is it a magnificent message? Well, it's a divine message. It's a divine message. It comes from God. L- listen to what he says. It's I became a minister, uh, verse 25, it's a stewardship from God given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. To them, verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this is a message from God. It's a magnificent message. It's not from any man. It, It originates with the creator of the universe. It's not the mere words of men. It's an announcement from God. We live in a world that is filled with words. The writer of Ecclesiastes said long ago, of making many books there is no end and if that were true in the time of scrolls and parchments how much more true is it today with the click of a button you can have any one of probably a million different book titles arriving at your door in the next day you can go on the internet read all sorts of articles and blogs you can watch the news for 24 hours a day we're filled our world world is filled with words and some of those words are good words my children, uh, those that can read, um, they love reading. They'll sit down and they'll read books for hours and hours and hours. I love that about them, and I like some of the books that they read, but they're not the words of God. That's something altogether different. We're talking about the words of the one who spoke the worlds into existence. We're talking about the words of of someone who could speak and the skies swarmed with birds and the seas were filled with plankton and fish and seaweed and all kinds of living things. That's the power of God's word. The power to create the world. So this is a magnificent message because this is a message that we have from God. It's not just the words of man. Why else is it a magnificent message? It's an ancient message. According to verse 26, this is a message that's been hidden for long ages. But it's now revealed. All the prophets of old, all the angels from all of time past have looked into this message of the gospel, this mystery, and have wondered what it was that God was doing, how it was that he would accomplish this salvation. This is an ancient message anticipated for many centuries. For all of time, humans have been waiting, and even all of creation, as we're told in Romans, has been groaning, awaiting the adoption of sons. For centuries, the saints walked by faith, not seeing when or how God would fulfill his promises, but trusting that one day he would. And now, in the person of his son, Jesus, we've been given that ancient message, long-anticipated. The message is magnificent also because it's a profound message. Reading between the lines here in this passage and throughout the rest of this letter, it's clear that the Colossian believers were drawn away by a kind of false teaching that was mixing up the teachings of of Jewish theology with some of the local mystery cults. And what they were doing, and what was so uh, appealing to them, is they were offering to people who would deny themselves and become a part of the community a sort of secret knowledge. Like, if you come into this community, and you do all the things we're asking you to do, and we finally initiate you into this community, we will give you secret knowledge that only you possess, And people were were tempted by this. They wanted to know, how does Christ fit into all this? And they began to teach these really, uh, really disrespectful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And and the Colossian believers were tempted and drawn away from the gospel because of these teachings. And, And Paul says, yes, the mystery of the gospel is in fact a mystery. But he doesn't mean that it's something hidden from all people. He means that it's something that's hidden but now revealed. It's an open secret. It's something that was hidden for long ages, but now God has shown us through the gospel what he's doing in the world. Paul shows that the true mystery is actually an open secret. So the message is magnificent because it's divine, because it's ancient, because it's profound, and finally because the message is a universal message. This is one of the main things he wants to bring out in this text. One of the great features of the gospel message is that it's for all mankind, as much for the barbarian, as for the cultured Greek, as for the devout Jew. His commission is to proclaim Christ to all men. As he says that God wants, in verse 26, or I'm sorry, in verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are The riches of the glory of this mystery. So what God has given us is a message that is coming directly from him. It is a message that has been awaited for centuries. It's a message that's far more profound than any knowledge we could possess. And it is a message for all people. That's the stewardship we've been given. So how how can we look at our sufferings and at our trials and at the difficulties God calls us to walk through on behalf of ministry and say, no, I don't want any part of that. No, we should rather rejoice in our sufferings because we get to be a part of this great stewardship. I remember uh, a time just after my wife and I were married. We were living in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, We uh, were members of a local church there. And one Sunday, uh, one of the missionaries that the church had supported for many years came to visit. His message was simple simple. His appearance was unimpressive. He was just a normal-looking guy. But when he began to talk about how the Lord was using him, we, we weren't thinking about how simple and how unimpressive he was. Because this man was a missionary in Papua New Guinea. He had labored for decades to learn the languages of one of the remote tribes, to set it to writing, and with the help of others, to translate the entire scriptures into that native language. So, this is the work of a lifetime. Can you imagine every day the tedium of hour after hour sitting there in the jungle, laboring to learn a local language, laboring to understand a culture, laboring to translate the scriptures word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence into that language? What a tedious, suffering filled ministry. But it wasn't the tedium or the mundaneness we were thinking of that Sunday evening when he came to visit. He showed us a brief video of the day that they were able to bring the New Testament to the tribe among whom he had been ministering. And as that twin prop airplane landed on their grassy airstrip there in Papua New Guinea, here comes the entire tribe out of their village, dressed in festal regalia Che- uh, cheering and clapping, surrounding that plane, all anticipating the day when they would be able to hold the Word of God, the message of the gospel in their mother tongue. Brothers and sisters, how often do we lose this vital perspective? How often do we dismiss the message? We water it down. We set it aside in favor of the wisdom of this world. Our ears itching for some new thing. But if we can remember that the message with which we've been entrusted is a divine message, an ancient, long-anticipated message, a profound message, a universal message, meant for the ends of the earth, then we would be willing, like Paul, to suffer whatever God calls us to endure in order to be part of God's mighty work. It's a magnificent message, but consider with me as well the meat of the message. What is the message? What is this message that we've been entrusted to share among our friends and neighbors and throughout the world? Paul says, To them God chose, in verse 27, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, what is the message? It's Christ in you, the hope of of glory that's it that's the message that's the stewardship we've been given and in that small phrase these few words is packed so much insight so much theology that we really don't have time to break it all apart but we will take a few minutes just to consider what it is that paul's saying paul says it's christ in you this message this stewardship we've been given is not just a truth it's a person What we're offering to people when we open up the word of God is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The message is Christ. And Paul gives us a glimpse into his blessed nature earlier on in chapter 1 of this epistle. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the person that our gospel message is about. The one who created all of the earth The one who gave his life and shed his blood so that sinners could be saved. This is the person about whom the gospel is. And we're not just saying that it's about Christ because we say that Christ is in you. Paul tells the Colossian believers, Christ, that amazing person, is in you. What does he mean by that? How can one person be in another person? Especially when that person is the son of God. Well, Paul, when he he talks about Christ in you, he's talking about the fact that the Spirit of Christ is actually dwelling in every believer. He makes it a little more clear in a parallel passage. We won't take time to term there, Uh, but Christ, uh, Paul says in another place in Ephesians chapter three, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, uh, what we're experiencing as believers is Christ through His Spirit being in us, being in ourselves. He, he, he intercedes for us before the gracious throne of the Father. He, he reminds us of his teaching and his character. He comforts us and encourages us through his presence. He reminds us to stay away from sin. Jesus himself illustrates this in John 15. Remember what he said in John 15? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So what Paul is saying is that Christ is in us. That is, we draw our nourishment spiritually from him. We are secure in him. Our security is not in and of itself. It's in Jesus Christ. And and Christ is in us us. We're constantly connected to him through his spirit. And he says, it's Christ in you. Now, who were these Colossian believers? Colossae was not an important city. It was used to be long before Paul came along and before his friend Epaphras planted a church there. But it had long since fallen into insignificance. It wasn't an important town. It wasn't an important city. The people living in there and the people who were members of the Colossian church were not important people at all. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who created the worlds and shed his blood for sinners, was in them. I don't know many of you. I don't know any of you. But I do know that if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will receive him, that is, if you'll believe in his name. trusting by faith that his death on the cross paid for your sin and made it possible for you to be reconciled to God, then you are welcome in the family of God. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. If you will believe in Jesus, you are welcome in the family of God in Christ. That is a powerful message, isn't it? And, friends, if you're already in the family of God in Christ, that's the message to which you've been entrusted. I mean, how much are we willing to suffer and to go through difficulty to get that message out? And he says that Christ in you, this message constitutes the hope of glory. This is none other than the bold assertion that those for whom this is true will one day behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. What we're saying is that God in Christ is going to come back to this earth and he's going to take over and he's going to remake all things and those who believe in Jesus Christ will live with him on a recreated, perfect earth. And they'll be with him forever and all the tears will be wiped away. This is the hope of glory. It's going to last forever. We'll see in living color what Moses only glimpsed when he saw the Lord and he heard him say, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Both the dead in Christ and we who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. Beloved, this is the hope of the gospel. So let's stop being distracted by the lesser hopes of this life. When you're a kid, you hope you can grow up and not have to listen to your parents so much. We hope we can get our driver's license and be able to go wherever we want to go. We hope to graduate from high school. We hope to graduate from college or get a job or get a promotion. We hope to find someone we like and eventually get married We hope we can maybe have children. We hope our children will just get out of that toddler phase. (laughs) We hope we can buy a house. We hope we can buy a bigger house. And on and on it goes until our life is gone. What is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Friends, the things we think are so important mean nothing. They're a shadow, a blink in the grand scheme of things. They're a speck of dust floating into the distance. Whether or not the gospel helps you to be more successful in your business ventures, whether it improves your love life, whether it helps you enjoy life's simple pleasures more, those are all good things, but they are not important in comparison with this, the hope of glory. That day when we'll all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and behold his face. The reason the gospel is important is not because of all those simple things, all those lesser things. It's because your soul will last forever. It's because the glory of Christ is infinite and unsearchable. The hope we have in Christ is simply this. Those who have Christ will enjoy the most sublime, blessed, fulfilling Meaningful, pleasing existence for all eternity on a renewed and perfect earth in the presence of the smartest, most interesting, most kind, most just, best being ever to live. So we can lean into difficulty because of this magnificent message and because of the meat of the message. And finally, because quickly, the the method of the message. I mean that the message that we've been entrusted to demands of us a certain strategy that Paul outlines at the end of the chapter. He says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is very simple. If it's true that Christ in you is the hope of glory, if that is the most important thing and that everything else pales in comparison with this message, if it's true that I can even rejoice in suffering because I've been entrusted with this great stewardship, then why would I ever be distracted by any other message? I want to preach Christ. Paul says, we proclaim Christ. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? So they can have a better marriage? Not in and of itself, no. Why? So that they can be happy and and not suffer because of their sin? Not in and of itself. No, why do we do that? So that we can present every single person mature and complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking for that day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what I care about. No matter if you're a Sunday school teacher or a mother or a professional or you work in a warehouse or you're a kid, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so will everyone you ever interact with. And we need to focus. We need to focus on the message that God has entrusted us to preach, even if we're not a preacher. We need to not grow distracted by the good things of this life. Ignoring the best thing. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can see why it makes sense that Paul would say in verse 29. For this I toil. I'm happy to work my fingers to the bone. So that I can take my message. The message of the Lord Jesus Christ to just a few more people. They need to hear it. Ministry is rarely easy. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been called to minister. You've been called in one way or another to take this message, the message of this book, and to open it up and to share it with the people sitting next to you in the pew, with the people living next to you, with the people that you interact with every day. It may mean that you might miss out on a few football games. You may need to open your home to a troubled foster child. You might need to stretch your finances a little to send that missionary to Southeast Asia. You might spend a sleepless night in prayer, but the stewardship you've been given is infinitely, totally worth it. Rejoice in the difficulties of ministry because the magnificent, hope-filled, life-completing message of the gospel has been given to you by God so that you can fulfill the stewardship he's given. Let's pray. Father, again, as we've seen your word, as we've beheld your truth, we know that in and of ourselves, we fall short. And so I pray that you would forgive us and that you would empower us through your spirit to follow Paul's example, to rejoice even in suffering because of this stewardship. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'd like us to take a moment to respond in our hearts. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're you're really, you haven't been convinced of the truth of the gospel. You're not a Christian. Or perhaps you would say, I'm a Christian, but not because you believe in Jesus Christ, but more because you're a member of a church or you've been baptized or because your family is Christian. But you don't really believe it in your heart that Jesus died for sin so that you could be right with God. Friend, I would urge you to consider the message that we've talked about this morning. Consider the fact that one day you'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that in in a moment as we sing our final hymn, that you'll take the time to seek out one of the deacons, myself, one of the members of this church, and that you would initiate a conversation so that we can show you how you can be right with God today, a forgiven follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe you're sitting here and you are a believer, you're a Christian, you've believed the gospel. I wonder if you've shied away from the, what God has called you to do. I wonder if you've held back when God's called you to do ministry, when God's called you to serve Him, because it would be hard. Friend, I, I hope that this morning you would commit to change. And that you would commit to serving him and rejoicing in the difficulty because of the worthwhileness of the message. So at this time, we're, we're going to, uh, to have a hymn. I, I think we'll, let's just maybe take a few moments to um, think about this in our hearts. If you'd like to come forward, there'll be men uh, standing ready to, to speak with you about that. Um, let's just take a moment in silent prayers. We're pr- praying, and as, as the, s- the song begins, uh, to do business with the Lord.